Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message that I'm calling One Act of Righteousness. Those words come from Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. It says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also was the one act of righteousness that brought justification for all men, and it brings life. I was working this past week in my accounting department on a special assignment. And we have a new lady that's working back there, and she's only been with us three or four months. And you know how it is if you've ever started a new job, there's all this inhibition. One of the ladies that trained her has been with us for about 15 years. She knows that accounting department like nobody's business. And I love what she said to the new hire. She said to her these words, there is nothing you can do that I can't fix. What a gift to tell somebody that. Friends, I want to tell you, it's the message of righteousness by grace. There is nothing that anybody has ever done. I don't care how bad you are. If Hitler would have got on his knees before he died, he too would be in heaven right now. There is nothing that anybody has ever done that's too big for grace. Grace can fix anything. There's no stronghold that grace cannot dismantle. There is no addiction that grace cannot overcome. There is no brokenness that grace cannot heal. Friends, there is no emptiness that grace cannot fill. No sin that grace has not already paid the price for. You say, what has Romans chapter 5 verse 18 got to do with grace? I didn't hear the word grace. (laughs) You heard righteousness, didn't you? I'm going to tell you something. You don't get righteousness without grace. They are hand in glove. They come as a team or they don't come at all. In Romans chapter 5, 19, the very next verse, it says this. For justice through the disobedience of the one man. Who's the one man? That's Adam. Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man. Now who's that? (laughs) That's Jesus. The many will be made righteous. That one man is the grace man. So even though it doesn't mention grace, it's talking about one man, and we know that one man is the grace man. We live in a high-tech world. It's a computer world. We've got the geek squad riding up and down the roads and stuff like this. And this is what I was thinking about as the Lord was talking to me in pictures. These people behind the scene are always creating fixes for these superbugs, these internet bugs. Hopefully, if you've got uh, access to the internet, you are protected somehow with internet security. Because what internet security basically does is this. It creates a firewall. So that when superbugs try to come and get in your computer and get in your stuff, it has to go through a firewall. And the firewall recognizes that bug and says, oh no, you're not allowed in. And there's often times where you go to open up something and your computer will tell you, that's a Trojan. They're trying to come in. You sure you want to open that? And the answer is unequivocally, no, I don't really want to open that right there. So how does it do this? It seals up this firewall of protection on your computer, your hard drive, if you will, so that it cannot be infected. Our spirits are protected, are sealed, if you, if you will, by the greatest firewall in the history of, <laughs> of mankind. It's God's burning bush, if you will. And anything that tries to come into our spirit, man, it's impossible. It cannot get in because everything that tries to come in is consumed by God's burning bush, if you will, His presence. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the Bible says, In whom ye also trusted, 
that after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also that ye believed, here's what he says. He says, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And as I've said before, when he seals you, that means there's nothing getting in, and the only thing that's allowed out is him. And all he does is make things beautiful anyway. But there is nothing that can come in if you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, we find it said a different way. It says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. See yourself standing firm in Christ. You're not on shaky ground anymore. You are firm in Christ because of what the Holy Spirit has done and sealed you. It says, he has anointed us and he has sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. We have been sealed. Superbugs cannot penetrate our spirits, but what they can penetrate is your soulish mind. Your soulish realm, if you will, your mind, your will, and your emotions. The part when God said, you are born again, you are a child of mine, that is in the spirit man. I'm going to tell you something, you give a doctor a scalpel, and I guarantee you, he will not be able to locate your spirit. Your spirit is the life of God that's in you. It's not a component, it's not a part, it's all of what you are, it's your real spirit man. And so that's why we renew our minds with the messages of grace and God's unconditional love. It's so that emotional part of us, that soulish part of us, is renewed, just like the Bible calls us to do, renew our minds. You know what I found over the years? There is nothing that makes a superbug, one of these spiritual superbugs, run faster than the message of grace. (laughs) They, They can't stand the message of grace. They can't stand the message of God's love. You see, the bugs can't get into your spirit, but they can get in your mind if you let them in your mind. But you know what? Jesus knows how to take care of that as well. That's why it's so important to continually, every day, take in the message of grace. And as your foundation begins to get changed in your heart, you'll find you're going to start to see things in the Word of God that you saw a different way at one time as this message of grace begins to take root. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-13, through 13, we find these words. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophet's who spoke of the grace, not a grace, (laughs) not one of many graces, but they spoke of the grace, the one and only grace. He says these prophets spoke of the grace that was to come. And I love this. It made me cry at home when I thought about it. It says they searched intently and with the greatest care. You know, when I was thinking about that this morning, that's exactly what Jesus said he did. He said, who of you that has a hundred sheep and loses one, will not leave the 99 and go out and search for that one sheep until he finds him and he, he puts him on his shoulder and he begins rejoicing and he comes home and he throws a big party and he says, come and celebrate with me for this sheep of mine was lost and now he's found. This is the kind of intent search that these old prophets were talking about. He says, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. I want you to know something. Your ministry will change if you start looking at people that way. That it is not about me. It is about you. It is about God. It is about loving my neighbor as I love myself. We don't want to be self-centered people. We want to reach out. We want to impact other lives, you know, in so many different ways. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, isn't it? 
If you just open your mouth everywhere you go and just start talking about the good news of God, how good God is, how awesome God's been in your life, I'm going to tell you something. Somebody's going to be listening in. Somebody that's needing a word that day. Somebody that's needing help. Somebody that's needing hope that day. Just open your mouth. Be bold. Open your mouth. He said it's all about the gospel, preaching the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Are you kidding me? Angels can't have what we've got. They cannot be called sons of God. They are just angels, created beings. And then in verse 13, there's kind of like a shift in gears. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. It takes a drunk man to reject the message of grace. Or it takes somebody that's so filled with Kool-Aid religion to just reject this message of grace. What is there not to love about God's grace? It's his everlasting goodness and his kindness and his covenant that he's cut with his people. The Bible says the prophet searched intently and with the greatest care for this message of grace. Occasionally we'll sing the song, Call It Grace. <laughs> and we sing, some may call it foolish and impossible, but for every heart it rescues, it's a miracle. It's nothing less than scandalous, this love that took our place. Just call it what it is. Call it grace. Just call it what it is. Oh man, listen, there, there's so much to be thankful about. There's so much to be in love with Jesus about. Believers open up their soulish firewall for bugs by setting their hope on something other than grace righteousness you know we sing the song from time to time cornerstone what does the course say my hope is built on nothing less than jesus blood and righteousness i dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy trust in jesus name christ alone cornerstone weak made strong in the savior's love through the storm he is Lord, Lord of all. And then that last verse, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Watch what it says now. Dressed in his righteousness alone. You don't need a three-piece suit to impress God. You don't need $500 alligator slippers to impress God. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. I love that that I will stand before the throne faultless and I'll stand before the throne flawless. What hope that gives me. And it's because of one act of righteousness that Jesus did. Of course, we're talking about the cross. And he says here, he says, set your hope on the grace. Not works, not performance, but set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Do you want a good recipe for a milkshake? All right, let me give it to you here. You take a blender and you pour some milk in there, okay? And then two or three scoops of ice cream and blend it all up. There you go. You don't need to add anything to it. There's no other ingredients necessary. That will make an awesome milkshake. I don't drink milkshakes, but that will make an awesome milkshake. Sometimes what we do is we take the gospel and we feel like we've got to add more ingredients to it. No, the gospel is the gospel. The good news is the good news. The grace of God is, will stand all by itself. Several years ago, I worked in the ministry of picking children up all across the city, and I would pick up this family. I had two boys and two girls. 
and bring them to church, little teenagers. They all made commitments to put their faith in Jesus. The mom and dad didn't, and I would go visit them once in a while, but they were a little more stubborn than the kids were. But then the whole family moved away. They moved to another state, and they were gone for several years. And then, lo and behold, one day I heard a knock at the door, and there stood the family, minus daddy. Daddy had died. But there was the family at my door. <laughs> I embraced them, invited them into our home, and they brought with them a friend, 20-year-old man, 21-year-old man named Johnny. And so I knew the kids were saved, didn't know anything about Johnny, but I was always after mom to get mom to make that decision. And so as mom was sitting there and I, was, I went into ministry mode, that's just the way I am, when I, especially if you put me in my own home. I am ministry to the max. So I'm ministering to mom. The four kids are sitting over to my right and I'm ministering across the room to mom. And I'm zeroed in on her and I'm telling her about the love of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God and the salvation of God and how you need God. And all of a sudden I looked at my wife sitting to the left there and she's pointing. And I'm like, what? What? Oh, Johnny's falling apart like a cardboard helmet over here. Johnny? Yeah, I mean, I was directed this way. It's the power of God's word. It's the power of God's Word. And I saw Johnny. I have seen very few people in my life crying as hard as Johnny was crying. Johnny didn't expect that. It took Johnny by surprise. And Johnny, is his chest is just heaving and heaving and heaving. I got up and said, forget about Mom. Johnny, what's up, buddy? I went over and knelt down beside Johnny, and I said, Johnny, I said, the Word of the Lord's touching you, isn't it? He said, yeah. I said, Johnny, do you want to give your heart to Jesus right here in my living room? He said, yes, I want to give my heart to Jesus right here in your living room. And it was just so easy. I'm telling you, when you just make it about Christ, when you just make it about Jesus, and just talk about his loveliness, his righteousness, not yours, I want to tell you something, those kind of things happen. They won't just happen in my ministry, they won't just happen in my life, they'll happen in yours, in Jesus' name. Righteousness prevents the believer's spiritual firewall from being penetrated. Another way to say it is, with righteousness, the fix was already built in. But see, God was able to look down the road and say, I can see every spiritual superbug. And so when I seal you with this righteousness, I'm taking everything into consideration. I will not have to come up with an emergency fix somewhere along the line. You are forever sealed with righteousness. That means God's righteousness inside you. I want you to leave here today with this confident expectation that you can walk in triumphant grace over fear, over condemnation. When that double barrel shotgun is staring you in the face, fear and condemnation, those are the two things that you should start seeing leaving more and more and more. The things that you would have normally been afraid of, you're no longer afraid of. The things that normally condemned you in the past, you're no longer condemned by those things that used to rule in your life. Did you notice that as you scan the scriptures, that Jesus was never afraid. He was never afraid. Did you notice that Jesus never walked in condemnation? Why is that? It's because that Jesus knew that he is, and he was, and he will forever be the righteousness of God. Period. Jesus knew that he is, and was, and for, will always be the Son of God. Jesus knew that his father loved him with an everlasting love. Now let me ask you the question, are you the righteousness of God? Come on, mama, talk to me. Are you the righteousness of God? Absolutely. Is Jesus any more righteous than you are? Absolutely not. It's a hard one for us to say because we think, oh, you're talking about Jesus? You're talking about me? I know what I was thinking on the way to church. You are the righteousness of God exactly the way Jesus is the righteousness of God. 
Are you a son? Are you a daughter of God? Absolutely. Is Jesus more of a son to God than you are? Absolutely not. Does God love you with an everlasting love? He loves you with an everlasting love. He doesn't love Jesus even one ounce more than he loves you. It's an amazing thought. How can that be, God? (laughs) Right there, because of one act of righteousness. Friends, let me tell you something. The God kind of life is not a life without issues. You're going to have issues. Bats are going to fly into your belfry once in a while. Superbugs are going to crawl up your leg and get in your head once in a while. The God kind of life is to be able to go through situations that you encounter without fear and without intimidation and without condemnation because you know who you are in Christ. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus knew that he was the righteousness of God and he would always be that way. Here's what the Lord said to me. Fear and condemnation depart as we soak our hearts in the magnificent truth that Jesus' one act of righteousness was sufficient payment to make us forever clean and then plant us back in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus himself is that garden. I preached about that a little while back, but I want to preach about it again here. When I was looking at the word Eden, it's mentioned 20 times in the Bible. Every time it's mentioned, it's in the Old Testament. And when you look up that word Eden in the Hebrew concordance, it literally says Adam's home. We know that God planted him in the Garden of Eden, so it makes sense. So it's Adam's home. When we move over into the New Testament and we find this word paradise, we find it three times, but not in the Old Testament. But it's the equivalent of Eden, because when you look up the word paradise in the Greek, it literally says Eden. So you can see these are interchangeable words. And when you look that up, literally we know Eden, or this spiritual Eden, is Christ's home. So we have Adam, the first man, Eden. We have Christ, the last Adam, paradise. And we see this word come up three times, and I think it's all three times are so beautiful. When the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, was caught up into, the Bible says, into paradise. I don't know what he heard, but he heard things he couldn't tell you. He couldn't tell us. I don't know what that sounded like. Can you imagine that he heard things he wasn't permitted to tell? So that's one of the three times that this word paradise is used. I love the first time it's used, though. It's used in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, let me paint this story for you real quick. When the crucifixion began that day at 9 o'clock in the morning, there were three crosses. And very clearly it says Jesus was crucified between two thieves. So he was in the middle. He was in the midst of the two thieves. When the crucifixion began, both of those thieves were blaspheming Jesus. They were saying things like, if you're really the Son of God, get us off of these crosses. We've seen you do this before, come on. You know, heal us, get us off of these crosses. They're, they're both blaspheming, they're both mocking him. They're all in agony. They're all hurting like crazy. I mean, the crucifixion is the most cruel death that you can ever think of. And I can't even imagine what that pain felt like, searing every ounce that they were. And then Jesus begins to speak. He says things like, I'm thirsty. I think the criminals could identify with that. Yeah, we're thirsty too, Jesus. What they couldn't identify with some of the other things he said, like when he looked at John, and he said, John, behold your mother. He was talking about his own mother. He said, John, behold your mother. And he said, Mother, behold thy son. 
The thieves heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. And I think that's probably the one that made one thief turn inward. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And finally, one of the thieves said to Jesus, he called him by name, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I think that's an astonishing statement to say because why would you ask someone that's about to die to remember you? Only if you had the revelation that there was a kingdom beyond what we could see. And that's what was going on in that thief's heart. He's like, okay, there has got to be something beyond what I see. And he said to Jesus, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise. See, he was saying, there's got to be something beyond this curtain. The curtain was about to get torn, friends. There is something definitely beyond the curtain. It's the grace man and all of his goodness and all of his love. And he said to him, you're going to be with me in paradise. Three deaths that day. One person died for sin. That was Jesus. He died for sin. Nobody can do that again. He died once for all. And then you had one thief dying in sin, and you had one thief dying to sin. So what you have is you have the two thieves. I mean, Jesus died, and he paid the penalty for every one of us. And so what he does with the thieves, the thieves represent humanity. All of us have stolen, lied, cheated, whatever it may be. I had a Jehovah Witness one time really get in my business one time and tell me what you had to do to be saved. And I said, sir, that's inaccurate. Because he was saying, you've got you to gotta start studying the Word of God, and then, and then you've got to start believing the Word of God, and then you've got to get in a church. And I said, that is not right. I said, because I want to take you back to the cross when two thieves were being crucified, one on each side of Jesus. He didn't have time to get baptized. He didn't have time to join a church. He didn't have time to give to a church. He didn't have time to do anything. And he said, remember me. All he did was he put his faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. I felt the Lord saying to me, is one thief died on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the other thief that day died on the tree of life. That's what a cross is. It's a tree. And all Jesus did is said, okay, let me take your cross in you and let me put it in my cross in me. That's going to be righteousness. Amen. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then the third and final mention is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, and Jesus himself is talking. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Who's the tree of life? It's Jesus, isn't it? He said, he that overcomes, I'm going to give him to be able to eat from the tree of life. And that's all that thief did that day. He said, I want to eat from the tree of life. I'm going to eat from the tree of life. And watch what he says. He said, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst, in the midst of the paradise of God, in the midst of those three crosses, there was the tree of life right there. He said, he that overcomes overcomes this mentality that I'm no longer worthy, overcomes this mentality, it's impossible, I've, I've sinned too much, overcomes this mentality, I'm a thief and a robber and a murderer, overcomes this mentality that God couldn't love me. He that overcomes, to him I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
What Jesus was doing was pointing his listeners all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I love it. In Acts chapter 5, verse 30, the Bible says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Our hope comes from that one act of righteousness. Here's the good news, though. The good news is Satan is no longer in the Garden of Eden. Here's the good news about that. We can never be inoculated with sin ever again. We can never be inoculated with the penalty of sin ever again. The Bible says sweet water and bitter waters cannot flow from the same fountain. Your spirit can never be contaminated ever again. That is the Garden of Eden inside of you. It's Jesus himself. How did Jesus make us clean, forever clean? By planting us in the paradise of God through that one act of righteousness. He took our spirit and he made it one with his spirit, fulfilling 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Amen. In Romans chapter 5, verse 17, now we find these words. For if by the trespass of the one man, who's that? That's Adam again. Death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in this life through the one man, Jesus Christ? That scripture begins by talking about one man, and it ends talking about one man, but those two men are different. One's Adam, one is Jesus. One is the first Adam, one is the last Adam. The first Adam, what he did is he vaccinated the entire human race with sin fear and condemnation through that single act of disobedience. You can go back to uh, Genesis chapter 3, I believe it is, and you can read about the whole fall of man. Or you can look at the Reader's Digest version in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Inside of your spirit, man, there is no law from the standpoint of don't do this and don't do that. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking the command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. The shed blood of Jesus was our way out of sin, it was our way out of condemnation, it was our way out of fear, and it was through that one act of righteousness by Jesus, or another way to say it, just say one act of obedience by Jesus. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, and it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death unto a cross. That was the result of Jesus' obedience. It released righteousness. It released justification. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, we find these words. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Here's the old priest in the former setup with God that you would come and bring your lamb, your, you've committed sin, and they would stand time after time, the Bible says, and it would never take away sins. It would cover them, but never take them away. But he, who's he? Come on, that's Jesus. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And then he says this, he says, for by one offering, 
Another way to say that is by one act of righteousness. For by one offering, Jesus has. Not Jesus will. Jesus has. It speaks of a finished work. Jesus has perfected, it says, for all time. Not part time. Not full time. Not even this time. He has perfected for all time. All time. What? Those who are sanctified. I wish I could go down that rabbit trail, but I can't. We know the Bible calls us sanctified. We're the sanctified of God. We're the sanctified of the Lord. It says it in the Old Testament. It says it in the New Testament. And he says, here's what the sanctified can understand. That Jesus has perfected for all time those, the people who are sanctified. Jesus has perfected. So don't ever see yourself less than perfect. I'm not talking about your habits and your ways and things like that, but I'm talking the real you. I'm talking the spiritual component of you, the spiritual being. Jesus says, I have perfected. I'm in the word now. He says, I have perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us saying, this is the covenant. Covenant's better than a contract, friends, I'm telling you. Covenant is better than a contract. You can break contracts. You can't break covenant. Somebody has to die in order for a covenant to be broken. And Jesus and God are not going to die. Jesus is not going to die again. And he's talking about now, he said, this is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. And then he says, I will put my laws, plural. He didn't say, I'm going to put my law, because if you'd have been saying, I'm going to put my law in their heart, it would have been talking about the Ten Commandments. But he's talking about, I'm going to put my laws in their heart. He's talking about the law of love. He's talking about the law of grace. He's talking about the law of his goodness. He's talking about the law of his mercy. He says, I'm going to put my laws in their hearts and I'm going to write them in their hearts and on their minds. So they're not on external tablets anymore. He says, I'm going to go into a place inside the man. See, it's no longer external, it's internal with Jesus. I'm going to write these laws on their hearts. I'm going to write them on their mind or their spirit man. And then I love these words. And then he says, and their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Wonderful, wonderful statement. Jesus himself said, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. He said, it's impossible for me to remember these. How can that be? Because he's looking at the spirit man. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. We were always judging people on their outward appearance, but God says, I don't do it that way. I look up on the righteousness of Christ, which is in your spirit. He says, there are sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So what he's saying is there's no offering for you. And I already told you, I did it once for all, so there's no offering for me. So I don't have an offering and you don't have an offering, okay? So what do you do when you mess up? What do you do when you sin? What do you do when you have a bad thought? What do you do? What do you do when you really cross the line? You do something that you really, now nah, you're just bugging you, right? Years ago, I, I'm not kidding you, I, I would fast for a week or, or, you know, read my Bible a whole bunch more. You see, I was motivated to do something. You know, I like what I heard a minister say a couple of days ago. He said, we have this do more, be more, do more, be more, do. We call it the dooby dooby do mentality. We don't have a dooby-dooby-doo mentality anymore. It's the righteousness of God on the inside of me. I realize, hey, here's what I'll do. If, if, I, if I cross a line or something like that, listen, I, these things don't happen very often, okay? Your pastor doesn't do these kind of things. But if I cross the line, I say, okay, God, that really wasn't me. 
Even the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he said, when I do these kind of things, he said, I realize that ain't me. That's some sort of sin reigning in my mind. That's some sort of sin kind of t- hijacking my thoughts and whatnot. But that really isn't the real me. And so what you do is you say, God, that ain't really me. And then you just move on. You say, Daddy, I'm sorry. That's not who I really am. That's not what I want to do. Okay, we're all going to slip up, mess up from time to time. But we don't need to be walk in fear and condemnation now and go, now I got to work my way all the way back to my daddy. We don't need to do that. Amen. Friends, we are forever clean through Jesus by one act of righteousness. I was listening to a woman minister the other night. The Lord reminded her of when she lived in Scotland, her daddy was a farmer. And once in a while, they would have something called a bummer lamb. B-U-M-M-E-R, a bummer lamb. I got on YouTube yesterday just to look up bummer lamb to see what is a bummer lamb. A bummer lamb is a lamb that the mother rejects. And there is actually some YouTube videos out there that show this mother that gave birth to, to twins. So she gives birth to these two little lambs and she cleans them all up. But one of them, she rejects. And as that little lamb would try to come and feed, she was mean to it. She would push it away. She would run it into the ground. If you leave them with them long enough, they'll actually kill their own lambs. They're called bummer lambs. So what you have to do is you have to take that lamb. The farmer will take that lamb. He'll take it into his home, his own home. And they would warm it by the fireplace and they would hold it in their arms and they would bottle feed this little lamb and they would lay its little head against the daddy's chest and he would talk to this little lamb. And they would do that for several weeks until the lamb was big enough and you could put it out to pasture and it would be okay. But here's what they say about bummer lambs. Even when they grow up into full-grown sheep, when that farmer comes out and he wants to call in his sheep, 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 the bummer lamb's ears are the first one to go up. And the bummer lambs are the first one to come because they have been trained to hear the shepherd's voice and respond. They know the shepherd loves them. It's what John talked about in John chapter 10. He said, when, he said my sheep know my voice and they respond. And he hears the righteousness come out of our cry. And he comes and responds. You know, when John, the beloved, laid his head against Jesus' chest, I saw that picture of the bummer lamb. John had the greatest revelation of grace other than the Apostle Paul himself. You look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't have the revelation. Read their Gospels one time. They don't have the revelation of grace like John does. John was the only apostle that you see in Scripture that laid his head against the Lord's chest. He knew the intimacy of the shepherd. He knew the shepherd loved him. I would imagine Jesus whispered certain things when he was holding John. Everything the Bible says in John, in the very last scripture, says not everything's recorded because if it was, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to be able to contain it all. But I can only imagine when John would lay his head against Jesus' chest, Jesus would just put his hands on his head and just say, man, I I just love you so much, John. (laughs) I will always be with you. In Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty. They're talking about Jesus. This is a prophetic picture of Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. Jesus was a bummer lamb. He was despised and rejected by man, the Bible says. And then eventually it's going to work its way into his father as well. But he was despised and rejected by mankind, 
a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. We held him in low esteem. Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of, of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord, talking about God now, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a bummer lamb. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was totally innocent, but yet he was punished by the father, the bummer lamb. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. I don't understand that kind of love. Can you imagine it being the Lord's will to crush your own son? Can you imagine really taking delight in crushing Nathan? This begins to show you the scope of God's love for us because he had us in mind. This wasn't a random, let's crush my son. This was, I can see, I can see what it takes to bring man. I can see what it's, it's going to take in order to release pure righteousness. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer or to treat Jesus like a bummer lamb. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. You know, that's an expression that totally explains Jesus in John chapter 1, where it calls him the light of life. He says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. It's exactly what Romans chapter 5 is saying, that he bore the sin of many that we might have his righteousness. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, we find these words. It says, For he rescued us, from the domain of darkness. He rescued us. When you think about the connotation of being rescued, you see it as though there's nothing you can do to contribute. You ever watch someone drowning and watch the lifeguard go after him? I have. You know, those people can't do anything to save themselves. <laughs> and that's what Jesus did for us. He rescued us from the domain of darkness or the condemnation of Adam, essentially, is what he's saying there and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want you to see something. The word redemption comes from the word redeem. And the word redeem means to buy back. I used to watch my daddy do this all the time when we were growing up. If we got to the end of the week and we were a couple of days away from payday and we needed groceries, my daddy would always take something, go down to the pawn store. And depending on what he pawned, determined how hard up we were because once in a while he'd go pawn his guitar. 
My daddy loved to play the guitar, and I'm going to tell you what, that was a hard thing to pawn. I think pawn stores, what they want you to do is they're, they're hoping you won't come back because they give you very little for it, and if you don't come back and claim it within, I don't know what the length of time is, probably 30 days, you lose your product. You lose whatever you pawned there. That's the way it works. And so what Jesus did, essentially, we were pawned. We used to belong to, to God at one time, and then Satan stole our hearts, put us in a pawn shop, and Jesus came back and said, wait a minute, I'm going to go to every pawn shop in the world. That one belongs to me. That one belongs to me. That one belongs to me. When you play the game of chess, the pawn is the least important piece on there, but the king is the most important part in the game of chess. And God didn't see us as pawns. You know what he saw us as? He saw us as kings and priests. And he said, I'm going to redeem them back, but it's going to cost me my precious blood. It's going to cost me all my blood. In Colossians Continuing in verse 21 and 22. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before the Father holy and blameless and without reproach. Friends, grab a hold of that truth right now because here's the way Jesus said, when I give you my righteousness, you'll be able to stand before my daddy holy, blamelessly, and without reproach. There's nothing my daddy could look at you and find any fault in you about. Am I in the Word? Come on, if I get out of the Word, correct me here, but I'm telling you, this is in the Word. He said, listen, I'm going to do something for you because, Daddy, I want them to look like me. I don't want you to look at them and see them any different than with the way you see me. I'm holy, right, Daddy? Yes. I'm blameless, right, Daddy? Yes, you are, son. I'm beyond reproach, right, Daddy? Yes, you are. He said, Daddy, if I give them my righteousness, if I give them what's in my heart, they'll look exactly to me. That's what reconciliation is, is when you take two things and you make them look the same. That is reconciliation. And Jesus said, I reconciled them with my fleshly body through death. I love the song that Ray Bolts used to sing. It was called One Drop of Blood. The course of that, of that song is, one drop of blood fell to the scales and covered my transgressions and every time I failed. The enemy was mighty. He came in like a flood, but he was defeated by one drop of blood. Listen, Jesus shed his entire blood, but if he only shed one drop of blood, it would have been sufficient for payment for every man that would ever live. Oh, they got all of his blood. In fact, he still had some left when they put the spear in his side. And the Bible says water and blood flowed out of his side. And it just emptied everything left inside of Jesus. Everything else was already gone. Oh, my goodness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 is an amazing scripture. It can either put more condemnation on you or it can strip the condemnation off you. It depends on how you interpret it. Let's interpret it by the Bible, okay? All right. 1 John 3, 9. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin because I know I've sinned since I came to Jesus. Now, and it's saying, if I'm born of God, I wouldn't commit sin. That word commit in the Greek literally means practice. It means you don't make it a lifestyle. When God gives you a new nature, you don't go around just doing everything you wanted just like you were before. It's not, the message of grace isn't a license to sin. It's a license to be free. It's a license to get the shackles and the chains off that Sarah was singing about and talking about and exhorting about today. That's what the message of grace does. He says, whoever is born of God does not practice sin for his seed. That's Jesus. For his seed remaineth in him. There is no way for you to shake Jesus out of you. 
Because we're one with Christ. The Bible says wherever we go, He goes. Wherever we stop, He stops. You know, that's the prophetic picture of the cloud and the pillar of fire in the Old Testament. That everywhere we move, we have and live. We have our being in Christ. Now he says this. For his seed remaineth in him. And here's a profound thing he says. And he cannot. He cannot sin. He cannot sin. Jesus' seed is on the inside of you. He says he cannot sin because he is born of God. So that means we don't commit sin from time to time? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it's talking about, it's talking about the spirit man here. And it's saying the spirit man, it's impossible for him to sin. Why? Because he's been sealed with righteousness. Remember the superbugs can't get in. You cannot sin out of your spirit. That's the part that we stand before God someday and he says, righteous, 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 righteous. Oh man. When Jesus was about to be crucified, He spent one last evening with his disciples. And they ate together. They broke bread together. He instituted the Lord's Supper. And the Bible says, after the evening meal was served, the Bible says, Jesus got up, took off his outer garment, and tied a servant's towel around his waist. And then he walked over and he grabbed a basin and a pitcher of water, and he poured water in that basin. And the Bible says, he began to wash their feet and dry their feet with a towel that was wrapped around him. He's working his way down the line. Thomas, Nathaniel. Right down the line, finally he gets to Peter. And he says, Peter, you don't understand what I'm about to do to you, but there'll come a day you'll understand what I've just done here tonight. Peter says, are you going to wash my feet? Now he just watched him wash a whole bunch of disciples' feet. He said, are you going to wash my feet? He said, yeah. And Peter says, no, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, unless I wash your feet, he says, you have no part with me. Notice he didn't say you have no part in me. If he would have said you have no part in me, it would have meant Peter lacked salvation. That's not what he was getting at. He says, you have no part with me. As we course our way through life, life in general, There's stuff that gets on our mind and makes our mind dirty. I get it. There's stuff that gets in our emotions, these bugs, if you will, and and makes us feel and, and respond like we shouldn't respond to people. I get that. So he's saying, listen, this is the power of just washing you. This is the power of communion every single day. This is the power of allowing me to touch you in some of your most private places. Then Peter flip flops the whole thing. He said, well, in that case, he said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. Jesus looks at him and says, he said, a man that has been washed only needs to wash his feet for his whole body is clean and he says to Peter and you are clean I think the reason Peter was feeling the way he was feeling is probably because he was still feeling the condemnation because it wasn't too many days before that he had just really had a confrontation with Jesus when Jesus was talking about going to the cross and he said no Jesus you are not going to the cross And he had to say, get behind me, Satan, for your stumbling block. And I think that hurt his feelings probably a little bit. And so when Jesus is coming to wash his feet, come on, you still want to touch me, Jesus? So when Jesus said, he said, when a man has been washed, he only needs to wash his feet. Those two words, washed and wash, are two different Greek words. Two totally different Greek words. 
The first one means an entire bath, and the second one means to wash just a part of your body. So what Jesus was doing was skillfully pointing Peter back to the time in the Old Testament when Moses consecrated his brother Aaron, who became the first high priest, and his sons. And when he consecrated them for the priesthood, he made them take a ceremonial bath where they had the whole body had to be immersed in water. That only happened one time. As they stood and ministered as the priests, they only had to wash when they came in to the temple. They only had to wash their hands and their feet. You go look it up in the Bible. They never had to have a complete bath ever again. What's the good news for you and I? We don't need a complete bath again. We are forever righteous because of one act of righteousness by Jesus. Father, we thank you that Jesus' one act of righteousness sealed us and placed us in the Garden of Eden inside of Jesus, in the Garden of Paradise, where we could never, ever, ever, ever be infected again by sin. I want to thank you, Father, that that gives me such strength and such confidence. I don't have to walk around sin conscious. I can walk around sun conscious. So, Daddy, I'm just thanking you today in Jesus' name as we're building upon the righteousness of God and the grace of God. I want to thank you, Father. We are just becoming more and more liberated because of this wonderful truth. Daddy, I want to thank you that Jesus emptied every ounce of blood so that I would never have to shed even one ounce of blood. Jesus became my kinsman redeemer. He was the one that said, this one belongs to me, I want to buy him back. This one belongs to me, I want to buy him back. She belongs to me, I want to buy her back. And he did that on the tree of life. In Jesus' name, amen.